The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you look to turn to Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles, and as I often say, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use the one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, take it with you uh, as a gift of us for your being here. You know, as we look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13, and I trust you're, you're getting there, I was particularly moved by the words of one of our songs that we sang in worship. Do you ever, do you ever really think about the reality that I can't run from his presence? I can't run from his arms. Now, there are times that you and I feel very alone. There are times when, because of circumstances, we just wonder, have I gone down the wrong road? But you can't run from him. And particularly as we look at these verses this morning in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, when he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. The very God who commends you and I to work out our salvation, makes very clear to us that he's the one who does the work. So we look at that and we go, okay, I work out, but he works. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Because Paul's writing is so honest and practical. And this morning he he moves into another area to drive that practicalness home. As Christians, we know it's important to spend time alone with God in prayer and study. Yet the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in a practical application. Truth leads to action. And there is no value in mountaintop experiences if it doesn't teach you how to live in the valley. And this is why Paul is so brutally honest here. So let's look at practical Christianity for a few moments here. As we have been looking over the last four or five weeks at verses 5 through 11, we have been looking at some of the most riveting truths in the New Testament. They have concerned the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, and certainly his eventual reign over all creation. Yet these doctrines are introduced into the letter, not for their own sake only, but for very practical purposes. Now, I said on a couple of times during the weeks that we were going through this, why does Paul keep hitting this thing of Christ's humanity? We get it. We know he was a man. But Paul continues to drive this truth home because when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he wasn't tempted in his deity. He was tempted in his humanity. He was tempted physically. He was tempted spiritually. He was tempted vocationally. 
He gave us examples of how to live with disappointment, how to live with all these areas and still rise above them in tremendous victory. They were, were included first in the examples of the role of obedience and humility that living the Christian life is about. And no sooner have they been set forth in these seven verses than Paul returns once more to an extremely practical statement. Again, verse 12, he says, Therefore, everything we've just looked at, readers, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, in living the Christian life. What is he moving towards? What is he setting clear to us? We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Bishop Hadley Mole, an old-time writer, made this statement about these verses. Quote, We have still in our ears the celestial music, infinitely sweet and full, of the great paragraph of the Incarnation, the journey of the Lord of love from glory to glory by way of the awful cross. May we not now give ourselves a while wholly to reverie and feast upon the divine poetry at our leisure. Not so. The ultimate sequel is that we are to be holy. We are to act in the light and wonder of so vast an act of love, in the wealth and resources of so great a salvation. We are to set spiritually to work. End of quote. What he's basically saying in eloquent language is, you see all this truth? Now get busy living it. That's what he's saying. Have you ever noticed that Paul uses the word therefore uh, twice in these verses, in verse 9 and in verse 12? And therefore means because of. So if you can think of everything that we've been through in the last four or five weeks, the constant talking about Jesus' humanity, the constant talking about everything he achieved and how he triumphed. Therefore, on the basis of all of this, he says, he points out this parallel result of Christ's conduct. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Therefore, God also exalted him, verse 9. Jesus showed the course of humility and obedience. Therefore, the Christian is to work out his salvation, verse 12. The words show that doctrine always leads to practical Christian living. So the deeper the doctrine the more practical the life. So let's look at this whole idea of working out, working it out. Now, Philippians 2.12 can be a problem for Christians if they neglect the context and assume, as a result, that the verses support the idea of a self-help salvation. This is the view that although God has a standard of 100% righteousness, he knows we're not perfect. 
So he'll be content with a 43% righteousness or maybe a 63% righteousness. People who see salvation in these terms take this verse as a statement that salvation can be earned and we are to work towards it. But that is not what the verse says. On the contrary, it teaches that because you already are saved, because God has already entered your life, because you have already trusted him as your savior, believing on his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sins, because all of this has taken place in your life, therefore, you now have the power in your heart and life to work these things out. Now, this should be clear to us for two reasons. Number one, the clear meaning of the sentence. You'll notice the verse does not say work for your salvation or does it say work towards your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And no one can work his salvation out unless God has already worked it in. And that is where you and I rest this morning. When a person comes to the truth of the gospel, he is not much different from what he was moments before he believed. He has heard the gospel preached. He has responded to it. Before he believed, he was full of misconceptions about God himself. He had problems he couldn't solve. He was doing things that were against God's will. After he believed, these things were usually exactly the same. He still had the same problems the same misconceptions, and sometimes even the same doubts. But now as the Spirit begins to work, he begins to understand that things need to change. He now has the Holy Spirit within his heart. And as he responds to the work of the Holy Spirit, he begins to see that salvation, this salvation that he has, must express itself. It must be seen directly, consistently, to the conduct that God has required. So we begin to learn that genuine salvation expresses itself in genuine action. Genuine salvation expresses itself in genuine action. There are clear results when the Spirit is in your heart. And number two, the outward conduct of the believer. The second reason why this verse refers to the outward conduct of those who have been saved is because there is a clear parallel in what Paul has been teaching here and what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you look at Philippians 2.15, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, that could probably be a four-month series right there. But he goes on in verse 15 and he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now the word children, blemish, and the phrase a crooked and twisted generation occur in Deuteronomy 32. Notice verse 4 and 5. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished and they are a crooked and twisted generation. It doesn't get more blunt than that, does it? 
The parallel shows that Paul was thinking of Deuteronomy as he wrote in Philippians. And remember, Paul knew the law. He was completely immersed in the law. He knew every aspect, so it only makes sense that he could draw from that experience to bring this forward. So, so let's begin to think this through a little bit and try to follow where he's going here. If you think about the people of Israel, the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt by God who had brought them out of Egypt in spite of the fact that there was nothing in them to commend them to God. They were not mighty. They were not wise. They were not more numerous than any other people. But God loved them. And that was the sole reason for God's deliverance. So he brought them out miraculously. He caused those tremendous plagues, crazy things, to get them set free. And why did God work it that way? So that the people would know this came only from God and they would give him glory. If the people had their way, they would have stayed in Egypt, even though they were slaves. In fact, we've read different occasions where they murmured and complained and wished they were back in Egypt, in spite of the fact that they were slaves. But God led them out, and he did not change his mind. And one of the things that you and I have to really grasp from this is that when you accept Christ, there are times you'd like to go back. There are times that you'd at least maybe like to stay where you are. But when God starts leading you, you can't run from his arms. You can't run from his presence. And the same God who draw is, drew Israel out is the same God who's going to draw you into a life that he wants for you. And that's why... We have to work this salvation out because there is a clear path, a clear road that he has planned out for you and I. And this is important for us to grasp. Now, here they are again at the, at the Jordan River and they're about to go into the land. But how did they go into the land? The Red Sea is miraculously parted and they go through on dry land. Really? It's got to be God. And, of course, my favorite part of that whole story, and we saw this when we were in Joshua, the Battle of Jericho. How do they take that city? They march around seven times. They blow trumpets. They shout loud. The walls come down. Can you just imagine, can you just imagine Joshua going to the captain of the guard and saying, hey, we're going to take this city, and uh, I've given this one to the choir. Can you imagine their response? Excuse me? Yeah, I'm giving it to the choir. And when they shout and they blow the horns and the walls come down, I can just see some of the guys walking up. Harry, man, the way you hit that high C, did you see those walls come down? Wow. No. It had to be God and only God. And people learn to praise and glorify God. So here we find Moses, he realizes at the time that he is not going to be able to go in to the promised land. And so he wants to gather people and give them one last charge. And he wants to remind them that you're about to move into the promise of God and you're about to gain all these promises because of his glory. Now live like people of God. 
In other words, work out this salvation according to his purpose. This is why I think Paul resonates here with what, this, what has taken place. Paul was about to be taken himself. He didn't know if he'd be killed immediately or if he'd be spared for a bit of time, but he knew this was probably the last time he was going to be able to address these people, these Philippians who he loved so deeply. And as he thought about what to tell them, it must have come to him that the situation of the Philippians was very similar to that of Israel and that his situation was very similar to that of Moses. They would have stayed in their sins had God not begun to teach them the way of the Christian life. But God had delivered them, and now, because of this deliverance, they were to work out the salvation that God had miraculously given them for his glory. They were to strive for the the realization of God's love, his peace, his holiness, his goodness, his justice in their lives. Remember, Israel kept falling back. Don't you do the same thing. And so he draws them. So you and I are in the exact same position. There are many times in our lives that we would prefer to turn back, as I said. There are many times that we want to say, God, please stop pressing me forward. I can't take it. I mean, this trusting business is not easy. When God takes one thing away and I have to trust him for more, in my mind, I know what happens. I'm cooked. But he says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Follow me and watch what I can do. We are to be continually growing and progressing for God's glory. And just like the Israelites, when we stop, he's going to drag you along because he knows what's coming. So let's look at this area of God's work, okay? If I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, if I am supposed to be able to lock in and follow him, what's God's place in his? Well, as I've shared, we are to work out our salvation that God has worked in. But to see the whole picture, one more thought must be added. Even as we work out our salvation, we are to know that it is actually God's Holy Spirit working in us. Paul writes, Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But no sooner has he said this than he immediately adds, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do or to work his good pleasure. It's actually God who's doing the work. Israel messed up, but God never stopped leading them. And this is where he's working with you and I. So God's working begins with our wills. For the verse says that God works in us first to will and then to act out his good pleasure. Willing always comes before doing. And here's where most Christians fall flat on their face. 
because the desire wanes and that's the way they go. We'll never understand the doctrine of God's working in, in working to form a person's will until we realize that apart from that working of God in his or her heart, you and I can do nothing. Now, I know that someone might say, well, what, what are you saying? You tell me that I can't do what I want to do? And my answer is, yes, you can't. You have free will to decide certain things. You have the free will to decide if you're going to go to work tomorrow or call in sick. You have the free will if you go out to eat this afternoon to decide if you're going to get the turkey or the roast beef. But your free will is limited in so many ways. By your own free will, you cannot decide that you're going to have a 50% higher IQ. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You can't decide that you're going to become an expert in quantum mechanics. You can't decide that you're going to run the 100-meter race in eight seconds. Your will has limitations. But more significantly, just as you do not have free will intellectually or physically, so you do not have free will spiritually. You cannot choose God. Now that may seem hard to grasp, but Adam had free will and he lost it. All the people since Adam are born with a sin nature, an inability to choose God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, neither can he understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, there must be a working of God in your heart to open your eyes and to draw you to him. Now, let me give you an illustration that might help to, to make this clear. It's as if a person were standing on the edge of a huge muddy pit. And when they're standing there, let's assume that the sides are very high and very slippery. Standing up there, they have the free will to choose to either stay up there or jump in the pit. But once they jump in the pit, their free will becomes eliminated because they can never get back out on the edge again. Now, they can choose to stand in the pit. They can choose to sit in the mud. They can choose to scream and cry out for help. They can choose to be mad or indifferent. They can choose to throw the mud around. They cannot choose to get out of the pit. And this is what happened to Adam and Eve. They were created on the edge of the pit. They were free to choose anything but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, Genesis chapter 2. This was a test case. And Adam and Eve had free will to obey or disobey. They lost that free will, however, when they chose to sin. And they proved it by running away from God when he came. And since Adam and Eve, all people are born with the same inability to choose God. Some are complacent. Some are angry. Some are silent. Some are philosophical. Some are resigned, some are anxious. Some pass laws to justify themselves, to ease the pain. People act in different ways to minimize the truth of Scripture, but all are unable to come to God. 
No one comes to God until God reaches down by his grace into the pit and picks him up and sets him on the edge and says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And Romans makes this very clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. John 1.13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now in every city of the country, or if every country in the world there was a John the Baptist, there would still be people that don't come still people would resist. If you have come to God, it is only because God had first entered your life and drew you to him, quickening your mind and giving you the understanding and then filling you with his Holy Spirit. So it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. So let's look at these two kinds of works. If you have seen this truth, you are ready to see that the same God who works in you to will also works through that will to do according to his good pleasure. Now, I wonder if you have ever noticed that well-known verses in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, they speak twice of our works. The things we do, the kind of works uh, that are condemned that come from us personally and how he lifts up and honors the works that are done by his spirit. Look at Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that is, of human willingness, human working, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the result of God's working. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these verses are really Paul's own commentary on Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13. For they tell us that although God can never be satisfied with any good that comes from the human beings... He is satisfied and pleased with the good that is done by the Holy Spirit living and working through us. You see, it takes time. It takes study. It takes surrender. It takes commitment. In short, it takes work. Christian life is not an easy life. It is a life that we have to work out by His Spirit. So if you are a true child of God this morning, remember, he gives the want to and then the how to. And when the want to fits the how to, you find your calling in life. Let me say that again. If you're a true child of God, he gives the want to and then the how to. And whenever you have the want to, and it fits the how-to, you find your calling in life. Think about that this morning. You see, the very God who loved you so much to go to that cross and to die and pay for your sins is also the very God 
who sends his spirit to draw you to him. Because apart from him in your sins, you can never seek him. You are spiritually dead. And dead people don't reach out to anything. But because of his amazing grace, and see, this is what makes grace so amazing. Because when I am lost and dead in my sins and trespasses, he reached down and regenerated me. Out of all the millions and millions and millions of people who ever walked the face of this earth, if you're in Christ, he loves you. And he drew you to himself. And he is preparing a place for you in glory so that you and I can be with him forever. Knowing that, wouldn't you want to live for him? Wouldn't you want to be so surrendered in every area of your life that he could live through you and guide you? And I've said this several times before, but back in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, the last part of that verse, it says, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. This amazing life of grace has already been set out for you before the foundation of the world. It's already been given to you. But what do we do? We design the lives we want. And we go after this pseudo-happiness and think we're on the right path. And all that's doing is to serve to quiet and the spirit in your life, to talk over the spirit in your life, and to have you waste your life going after things he never intended to miss the things he's already given. What a powerful truth. He gave it to you already. And he's saying, come, taste, see how good I am. You can't do it on your own, but I've taken care of it. Just surrender to me and watch your life take off. What an amazing truth. Through that power, the tyranny of sin is broken and the possibility of choosing for God is restored. And a new life of communion with God is restored. I mean, think, before Adam and Eve fell, they walked in the cool of the evening with God. I mean, Adam hung out with them. They named animals. They named plants, birds. They enjoyed sweet fellowship. But after sin, it ceased. And now they were doing, taking care of all these things to try to get back to God. Sacrifices, looking forward to Jesus. And God began to work in them through this plan to get back. But here's the beauty thing, and I think it's something we don't think about often. When you accepted Christ as Savior, the very same fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God, you immediately have now you have that relationship if you've trusted Christ Adam walked and talked named animals and Jesus is saying let me walk and talk with you let's have that fellowship you've got this need this isn't going good hey give it to me let's work through this I may not answer it today 
Because you know what? There's some things you need to learn by fighting through this and learning to trust me that's going to really build our relationship. So let's get through that. That other thing you're working on, I understand. That broken heart you're feeling right now, I was there. I was disappointed. I know that pain. I've been there. And you know that the rejection you feel? I was hung on a cross because of being rejected. Nobody knows your pain like I do. But listen, if you give it to me, I'm going to make something really good out of it. I'm going to teach you how to rely on me and you'll be able to mount up with wings as eagles. You'll be able to run and not be weary. You'll be able to walk and not faint. That's what I'm promising you. And I set it up before the foundation of the world. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because you're missing what I've already given you. That ought to make you sleepless at night to know that you're missing the power of God that was given to you on Calvary's cross. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Have you had the experience of salvation? Do you know the power of God in your heart? John Wesley knew that when he penned, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. When he wrote, he sets the prisoner free. Are you free? Are you free from sin? Yes. Free from worry. Free from panic. Free from the future. I mean, when Mike's saying he cares for the sparrow, I know he cares for me. If he is going to supply all the needs of the birds of the field and the grasses of the field, how much more will he take care of you? But we don't feel it because we're busy crafting our life our way and we're missing what he's given. And this is why only after believing God do we have the power to work out our salvation for his glory. And that is when we understand that the whole purpose of living, the chief end of man, is to glorify God. As you leave this morning, would you consider working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because it is God who is working in you to first have the desire and then to work it for his good pleasure. If you lack the desire, then you need to get in touch with the Spirit. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you have the peace that passes all understanding? If not, there may be something you need to do, and that's to cast yourself before him in humble repentance and obedience and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you believe, 
you have the power of the Spirit. And God will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Father, we thank you this morning for the amazing power of your word. I was completely helpless, lost in my sins, yet for no reason of my own, for nothing I brought to the table, for no ability I have, before the foundation of the world, you said, I love Craig Malcolm. I will die for Craig Malcolm. And I will draw his life to my purpose. And he's saying that to every one of you this morning. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Does he have your heart? Trust him this morning and be saved. Or trust him this morning, dear Christian, and be freed. And let the power of my sweet Lord work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. All God's people said, amen. God bless.